There are times when the weak win. Not generally. Generally, the, the, the strong prevail, right? The, the faster, the stronger, the quicker, the, the bigger, the better, right? Not always, and it, it depends greatly, you know, who's, who's the strongest depends a whole lot on what we're, what we're competing in. A chess match is different than a lawsuit, different than a football game. But generally, the weak don't win. But sometimes they do. Uh, there's, a, there's that very memorable fight scene in Cool Hand Luke where Paul Newman is boxing. He and George Kennedy are both prisoners and uh, they're boxing against each other and Kennedy just, just pulverizes Newman. But he keeps getting back up. And he knocks him down and he gets back up. And Kennedy knocks him down and he gets back up. And then pretty soon uh, he's just overwhelmed by the force of the will. Physically Newman is weaker uh, but he is going to prevail. Uh, I have my own uh, uh, painful uh, remembrance of this. I played tennis in high school, and uh, one of our crosstown rivals had a, he had a kid that I lined up against, D.K. Pearson, who I could never beat. Uh, D.K., senior year, was 115 pounds, weighed 5'1", uh, and uh, he didn't hit the ball, really. We used to say he just dinked it. Uh, he, would just, he would just sort of, it was like playing against a garage door. He just would hit it back. Didn't matter what I hit at him. Uh, he would just dink it back over the net. And these were usually uh, relatively high. There's no topspin. There's no angles. They're just sort of high middle of the court. And I'd hit some, you know, Two-hand, backhand, cross-court winner. That was, that was one of the terms. I hit a winner. <laughs> and he'd return it. Just boink, he'd come right back. And I'd hit it to the other side, right? I'd, I'd do a put away in the other angle. And there's no way he could get it. But he would get it. And he would hit it back. And so I'd hit it again. Right into the net. Or I'd hit it long. Or I'd hit it wide, right? I mean, he could count on the fact. His whole, his whole strategy <laughs> was just... Just hit it back. And at the level of tennis that I was playing, I would melt down and, and uh, he would win. I, I, clear, I, I clearly was the better player, but sometimes uh, the weak win. And then there is the quintessential example of the weak winning. We have it in pictures like this. On you stay. This is a classic 17th century Spanish painting of the lamb who is slain. Here's another classic painting. Uh, the lamb here, this is a big, this is a 15th century uh, Danish painting. And here you see it, it's down here. It's part of a much bigger scenario. And then here it is just dialed in specifically on the lamb whose blood is going into the chalice, communion, right? So, and then there's all kinds, you, you, in, in history and in art, you see all kinds of images, this is obviously very contemporary, but of a, of a lamb carrying a cross or carrying a flag. I mean, you see it in stained glass, you see it in all kinds of, uh, of you see it in all kinds of art through the ages. And I mean, this is obviously very old, this is this wood carving, but it's the lamb carrying a cross, uh, the lamb uh, that is conquering. It's a, it's a weird image to think of a conquering lamb, but it comes out of the passage that we are in 
today. So we've been in the book of Revelation for a few months now, and it's the last book, and it's a unique book. It's a letter, it's a prophecy, it's an apocalypse. It can be very confusing. It's deeply uh, disturbing, it's deeply devotional. Uh, Big picture, it's very encouraging if we can keep the big picture about us. Uh, We can lose ourselves in so many different ways in this book. Uh, So we started into the main section last week. And we're only, we're, we're, we just got a couple more weeks in Revelation and we start into Advent. But we started into the main section. Chapter 1 is this vision of Jesus uh, in power and glory. <clears throat> Chapters 2 and 3 is uh, the seven letters to the seven churches. And then chapter 4 begins the vision that is going to carry us through basically to the end of the book. And this is where things get really complicated and lots of symbols and lots of images. And there's Subvisions and there's flashbacks and there's cameo appearances and there's jumps ahead and it's really a, it's sort of a complicated book, but it is a book that is uh, that is giving us a big uh, encouraging uh, assurance that Jesus wins. And so last week we were looking at um, uh, this idea of worship in Revelation four, and today we're going to move into Revelation chapter five. Then I saw. Uh, in the right hand uh, of him who sat on the throne. So remember, John doesn't give us a lot of describing God the Father, the Ancient of Days. He just doesn't even try. Him who sat on the throne. A scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. So uh, now we don't know what's on this scroll uh, the fact that it's writing on both sides is sort of interesting because back then, that kind of parchment paper, you, you usually didn't write on both sides. This would suggest it's really important and valuable. You need every inch of it in order to, to carry the message. Uh, and, and again, there's all kinds of theories about uh, what this scroll should be thought of. Some see it as a book of mysteries, uh, of sort of the... All the secrets of the universe, I was reading this week, uh, Annie Dillard, uh, contemporary writer, uh, brilliant writer, I, I don't always agree with her, but she, she said the chief theological question, talking about the great mysteries, the chief theological question, she said, is what the Sam Hill is going on here? Like, what, what is ultimately happening? So some see it as, it, the scroll has the ultimate mysteries of the universe on it. Some see the scroll as a will. So it says that it has seven seals. In the Roman world, it was common to, to seal your last will and testament with seven wax seals. That was the indication that it was your will. But it doesn't, we're going to see how this unfolds, and it doesn't really seem like that makes sense because it's... Uh, unrolling the scroll, and that, that happens in chapters um, 6, 7, 8, 9, and really into chapter 10, and it's still a little confusing as to what's going on. But it's, it's, there's a lot of judgment and other thing that comes out that doesn't seem like it's a will. Some think that it's the book of the redeemed, the Lamb's book of life, the names of all those that Christ has died for. Some see it as the Old Testament, which only Jesus can properly hold on to and, uh, and interpret. And we can only really understand what's going on in the Old Testament in light of Christ. So there's a, a number of different um, there's a number of different theories about what it is. You, we've been in Revelation for a while now, and you know that lots of different ideas about the trees. We, we, it's hard to understand all the trees, but we get the big the big picture. And then I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, 
Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? So the scroll is in the hand of God the Father. It's enormously important. And the question that the angel asks is, who is able to execute the will? Who's able to see the book of mysteries? Who's able to, to, to look at the names in the book of life and to be sure that those people are rescued? Right? This is a, this is a big moment. But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside of it. This is sort of a King Arthur moment. There's, there's the sword and the stone, but, but Merlin has put this uh, spell on it and no one can take the, the sword out of the stone. No one is qualified to see what's going on. And uh, this is... Uh, this is bad news, but it's certainly, I think, I hope, by now you understand that you're not qualified. <laughs> I'm not qualified. We are profoundly broken people. What's wrong with us is not a, it's not a surface wound, right? We are, we have, we have been undone by sin. And so we don't have access to to the plan. We are not righteous. We can't execute on this in heaven. We can't come before the, the, the God in all his glory uh, on our own. And John says, and I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. So, okay, we've got the, a word repeated, emphasizing it. It's a little unnerving because John is a, is an is a seasoned guy by now. He's a seasoned leader. He's been persecuted. He's led the church. He's not somebody that you think is going to panic and, and be undone, but he's, he's completely undone. I wept and wept. I'm sobbing because no one is found who is worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. So, lion of the tribe of Judah and root of David, these are, these are allusions back to the Old Testament. Uh, Genesis 49, Isaiah 11. By the way, one of the fascinating things that I discovered this week, 404 verses in the book of Revelation, there's like 518 allusions back to the Old Testament. But... This is the interesting thing. More than in any other New Testament book, more Old Testament in the, in the book of Revelation than, you know, per, per capita any other New Testament book. But none of the references uh, in, the, in the New Testament, back to the Old Testament, are word perfect. They're all illusions. They all, it's, it's, it's as if John, the Apostle John who's writing this, is so saturated with the Old Testament with, with the Word of God, that it's just part of his conversation. He's not, he's not proof-texting things. He's just talking. So the Lion of the tribe of Judah. So Judah was the fourth son of Jacob, but he becomes the heir. The first three sons, there's 12 sons, the first three sons disqualify themselves in various ways. So he's the one that is sort of set up to be the, the, the lineage, the patriarch through which the lineage is going to go. And Jesus is from the lion, is from the tribe of Judah. So Judah, Jacob calls Judah a lion cub at one point. So lion of the tribe of Judah, this is a reference to Jesus. Root of David, 
uh, also a reference to Jesus, although usually in Isaiah we think of it as the shoot of David. So um, shoot is something that grows up, right root obviously grows down. So this is more primary than a shoot. This is Jesus, sort of subterranean. He's behind David. So two references to Jesus. Jesus has triumphed. Don't panic. (laughs) Do not weep. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain. Okay, so let's back up. Don't panic. The lion is here. When we hear lion, right, we think strong, sharp teeth, powerful, you know, imperial, majestic, king of the jungle, top of the food chain. Don't panic. Power is showing up. Right, the strong is here. This is what he hears. Don't panic. And then he says, then I I turned and I saw a lamb. (laughs) Okay, so not powerful, not sharp teeth, not fast, right? Not the king of the jungle, not the top of the food chain, but a lamb, a meek, quiet, soft, cuddly, often cute, but defenseless animal. Looking as if it had been slain. So it's even worse than this. (laughs) The lamb is dead. Standing at the center of the throne encircled by the four living creatures and the four elders. So so this is a dramatic moment. Uh, This is a dramatic moment in a book of dramatic moments. He is thinking he's going to see a lion. And I just, this is, you know, this isn't going to get you uh, through any uh, biology classes in college, but I, would, I have my own classification system for animals as a pastor. So uh, there's four. You've got predators. Okay, so yeah, claws, sharp teeth. I eat you, you don't eat me. You know, that's the, you know, lions and tigers and panthers and eagles. And yes, that you've, got, you've got the top of the food chain predators. Then you've got the things that, that are really fast and they can run away from the predators. So deer, gazelles, rabbits, right? It's sort of, uh, yeah, you could eat me if you can catch me, but you can't catch me sort of uh, motif. So you got those two. And then you got a third category of animals. And they're not faster necessarily, but they've got something going for them. Some reason why you leave them alone. Skunks obvious. Snakes could be poisonous. Uh, Elephants, rhinoceros, hippopotamus, something that's just so big you're like, yeah, the thing could sit on me or run into me and I'd be in trouble. And then you've got, you know, in that same category, you've got animals that uh, maybe they don't taste very good uh, or you've got animals that uh, can hide in plain sight. You've got animals that have got something going for it. So you've got predators. You've got the things that run away from predators. You've got this third category that's sort of everything else. But then you've got the fourth category. And in the fourth category, you have sheep. <laughs> so, and, and, and the qualifications for being in the fourth category is uh, defenseless, taste good, move slow, can't hide. Now, Three or four years ago, there was this 
number of articles that said sheep aren't as stupid as, as pastors say they are. What do I know? Maybe they're not stupid. I, I've never been a shepherd. I have, you know, for a couple of hours been around sheep. They don't strike me as being very bright, but here's what I know. They are an animal that needs a shepherd. If you release a sheep into the wild, it's, it's not going to go well. Right? And so, <laughs> you're thinking you've got the lion and instead you've got not even a, not even a full-grown sheep. You've got a baby sheep. And, uh, and it looks as if it's been slain. So, <laughs> let's, let's go from, from um, bad to worse. It looks as if it has been slaughtered. But of course... Slain sheep, slaughtered sheep, uh, they don't stand. So we keep looking at this, and we see that, uh, that something else is going on. I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures that we saw in Revelation chapter 4, and the 24 elders. The lamb had seven horns. Okay, so, so here's what you got to understand. Uh, horns represent power. Uh, so animals, there's symbolism here, right, throughout the book of Revelation. But, but basically, in, at this time, there's this noticing uh, in, this, in this, you know, world. Animals with horns are stronger or more powerful than animals that don't have horns. So horns represent power. Seven horns. Seven is the number of perfection, of completion. So lots of power. Seven eyes. Eyes are for seeing, for knowing what's going on. And so seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. So sort of all-knowing. So this lamb that was slain has got power. And it also knows what's going on. Uh, and the lamb goes and takes the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Again, we don't get a description of God. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. So they're now going to worship the lamb. Each one had a harp. So harp would represent um, worship and praise and sort of... Um, there's a sense in which heart may, may specifically refer to the praise of non-humans, sort of, again, Psalm 19, all of, all of the universe is declaring the glory of God. So this is praise, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, and more praise, adoration, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song saying, you, speaking to the Lamb, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nations. It sure seems to me like we get a great little succinct uh, restatement of the gospel that the Lamb, Jesus, was slain to uh, to purchase with his blood, with his life, blood is the currency representing life, to, to ransom us back from God, every people from every tribe and around the world. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests. That's you and me. You, Jesus has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on earth. 
Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. They encircled the throne. Clearly, we don't have uh, social distancing going on here. This is a huge worship night. You can imagine. 10,000, 10,000 angelic choirs, all kinds of people, all kinds of... It's a, it's a multi-sensory overload kind of event. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. So, so we're, we're seeing worship shift from just being worship of God, the Father, the Ancient of Days, to God the Father and God the Son, the Lamb of God, uh, who takes away the sin of the world. In a loud voice, they were saying, worthy is the Lamb. By the way, John will use the term Lamb John, I'm thinking now of John, the apostle who's writing this. So John the Baptist, of course, famously uses the term lamb uh, when he sees Jesus coming down to be baptized. Behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John, the apostle who's writing this, will, it, lamb of God is the favorite way he references Jesus. And he uses it almost 30 times in the book of Revelation. So worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, again, so both to the Father and to the Son, be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said, Amen. This, was, this is not uh, the Hallelujah Chorus, but in uh, Handel's Messiah, there's a, there's a, one of the songs is just picking up on this amen, and the elders fell down and worshiped. So, look, um, this, is a, this is an amazing glimpse ahead of what's going to come, uh, what is going on. And there's, there's so much to see here, uh, and it's so, in one sense, counterintuitive that I'm pretty sure I don't get it uh, and I'm suspicious that maybe you don't get it either. But what we are seeing here is that um, God wins in a sense by losing. And that, that, that that's what is so unexpected and we think that you win by winning, that you win by power, that you win by might, that you win by, by defeating, uh, that you win by money, that you win. And, and what we see here, and we are, we are priests, right? That's one of the things. He, he has won us back to be priests uh, of his kingdom. And, and I think that it is, we are being called upon to sort of mirror the kind of posture that we see in Jesus. Um, so, um, <laughs> in, in the Chronicles of Narnia, Lewis has a lion, Aslan, clearly a, the Jesus figure, uh, and the lion has power. He is the lion of Judah. But there are times when the lion, Aslan, uh, acts like a lamb and, and goes to his death, right? Submits himself to the white witch in a sacrifice for uh, Peter. And, um, and so uh, we also see this, I think, even more perhaps powerfully in what Tolkien does in Lord of the Rings. 
where he divides the offices of Christ, prophet, priest, and king, but between the three characters, Gandalf is the prophet, Aragorn is the, is the king. But the genius of the book is that Frodo is the priest, and Frodo uh, wins through sacrifice. He's weak. He's a halfling. He's not a, he's, you know, he's, he's not, he's half size. And so what, what in the world do you do with a hobbit? And yet uh, it is Frodo who is going to take the ring. He's going to sacrifice power. It's ultimately going to cost him his life. And this is all, this is all symbolic of Jesus, of winning through sacrifice and bearing the pain of other people and takes it upon him. And so we see this, this shocking thing going on uh, in this book. And uh, I think that the challenge for us is to, is to recognize that we have been made priests of a kingdom that sees power very differently than we may be inclined to see it. As a, to the extent that I have tried to understand the church in history, it's pretty clear that the church doesn't do well when it has power. It just tends to, it tends to head down the wrong path. And, uh, and, and yet, it is at its strongest when it is often at its weakest. And I, I know this is hard to get. I heard a, a sermon on this passage uh, some time ago, and it was being delivered by a, a very cool, tall, broad-shouldered, former special forces guy who now had a ministry that he was traveling all over the world, you know, rescuing people and going after bad guys. It was very cool. I was very jealous. <laughs> and, and he had great stories. He had great stories. He also had a Jesus that was sort of a cross between uh, Rambo and Jason Bourne and, uh, I don't know, Clint Eastwood and, uh, and very lionish, but not very lambish. And uh, I sort of thought, yeah, I don't think you completely get the point. And I wasn't going to tell him that, by the way. <laughs> but don't think you completely get the point of what's going on. We need to deal with the idea. You need to deal with the idea. I need to deal with the idea that in Christ's kingdom, the first or last, the greatest wash the feet of the least, the way up is down, the lion who conquers does so as a lamb that is slain. We need to wrestle with the fact that the cross that looked like the greatest defeat in history was the greatest victory. We need to deal with the fact that heaven keeps score very differently than we do. So we see in this book, in this chapter, excuse me, that uh, that all fall down, everyone everywhere falls down to worship Christ. And it says, those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Sounds very much, this Revelation passage sounds very much like what Paul will write about Jesus in Philippians chapter 2, that he is, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, being found in likeness as a man, he humbles himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross, so he goes down, Therefore, God highly exalts him and bestows on him the name that is above every name, that in the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Right? 
Everyone everywhere, everyone who has ever lived, in heaven and in hell, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We get a vision of that. We get a glimpse of that in Revelation chapter 5. It is profound. It is encouraging. It is disruptive. We need to be disrupted. The power that is the most powerful does not look like what we think. And so... um, This week, you need to meditate on uh, the Lion of Judah, who is a lamb that was slain. Let me pray. Lord God, we do not understand that. Uh, We do not understand power as you have exercised it. And uh, we confess that and pray for more uh, Christ-likeness in us. We celebrate the fact that Jesus, you were qualified to take the seal. We look forward to the glorious ultimate coronation of you in heaven. Uh, We long for that day. We, We rejoice in your greatness and your greatness on display in sacrificial service. May we be more like that this week. We pray in Christ's name, amen.